if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, shockingly, we will not be talking about election and predestination this week. So we have been in those three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, for quite some time. And so what we want to do is kind of shift gears here. I don't know about you, but outside of salvation grace, what is the greatest gift God has ever given you? It's the greatest gift. I know for me, it's my wife. For me, it's uh, Carrie. Because for, for my entire adult life, God has used my wife. She has been instrumental in the hands of the Lord to help me to grow in my faith, to help mature me and help me to flourish in my life And I have to say, my wife has been the greatest gift. And so, therefore, considering that gift, I daily pledge myself to loving her the way Christ loved the church, which is eagerly and willingly and sacrificially. Uh, Next to that, I I would say, would be my kids. I mean, my, my four little kids, little image bearers of God, and they grew up to be four big adult kids And it turns out, I don't know if you knew this, for those of you who have little ones, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, there comes an age in their life when you are not the sun in the center of their solar system anymore. No one told me that. But now they're older, and they love God, and they're a blessing to carry, they're a blessing to me, and therefore, I will pledge myself to turning the heart of this father toward his children. And I will follow Paul's advice, Paul's command in Ephesians 6, 4, where he says, fathers, do not exasperate or anger your children, but raise them up in the instruction of the Lord. And that's what I intend to do. I also think about this church, Christ Community Church. I, I, I fully, fully think, I mean, I, I agree fully that God brought us together at just the right time. That God brought me here and he brought you into our lives, the Kennedys, at just the right time. And I cannot even begin to tell you how blessed I have been to be your pastor. What a gift from God that you, this congregation, has been to me and to my family. And therefore, I resign myself to serve the body of Christ, this body of believers, as Christ served the church with diligence and eagerness and enthusiasm and sacrifice. You see, the nature of the gift requires a response. The nature of the gift requires a response. No, it demands a response. Paul is going to tell us that in light of these mercies, just as sin reigned in death from Adam to Jesus, so now grace reigns through the righteous act of sacrificial love, resulting in our eternal life. For the elect on whom God has shown mercy, sin will no longer rule over us, he tells us, because we have been brought from the dominion and the realm of death to the realm of sovereign grace. Amen. And so as intensely doctrinal as the last three chapters have been, that's how practical the next five chapters are going to be. Paul is going to sharply turn and then begin to tell us what to do with all this in the Christian life. How do we put it into practice? And so he gives us just one clear thought One clear thought. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, introduces the theme of the next five chapters. As a transformed community in Christ, we are able to discern God's will and are empowered to do his work, which is to build up 
the church, which is to build up the church. And so if you have your, your Bible, you can turn to Romans 12. Let's look at this passage. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, this is your true worship, it's your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be, be able to discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And so he's going to tell us how we can do this. Number one, grace. He tells us that grace inspires an urgent response. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in light of this great gift, in light of all that the Lord has done from us from chapter 3 to chapter 11, what should be our response? He says, I urge you. I urge you. And so when I think about an urgent call, an urgent response, I, I essentially think of three three aspects of an urgent response. The first one is immediacy. Jesus' message of the kingdom of God came with a sense of immediacy. When Jesus showed up in the first century in northern Israel, in Galilee, he announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't say it's far off. He didn't say it's coming. He said it's here. It's near. And when he came preaching the gospel... And someone came up to him pledging their, their commitment, giving him a commitment to discipleship. They said, Lord, I want to follow you, but let me first go take care of my affairs. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You come be my follower. Now, Jesus was not telling him that he could not go to his dad's funeral. That is not what Jesus was saying. Likely, culturally, his dad was still alive. And what he is asking for is for the opportunity to go back and take all the time that is necessary to culturally honor his father or his parents by waiting until they die and after they die then to go through the rituals of uh, bone uh, uh, preparation because they put their bones in what's called an ossuary box, this stone box, and then they put them in their family tomb. And that took a long time to do. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, you don't have time for that. If you're going to come follow me, come follow me now. Luke 16, 16, Jesus said this, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. So this good news of the kingdom of God is just too good. It's too good to put off. Isn't it good? There's so much good in it, but that's not the only reason. It's, we don't respond immediately or with a sense of urgency to this exhortation just because it's so good. We respond to it because there, we, are, we are in jeopardy. Look at what Peter said in Acts 2.40. He said with many other words, uh, Luke says, he, that is Peter, testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Believe in Christ and escape the coming wrath. We respond immediately, not only because the gift offered is so good, but because the alternative is death in this corrupt age, which is headed for judgment and wrath. And so this is a call to respond now and not delay. The second aspect of an urgent response is earnestness. Uh, years ago, someone got word that I was going to have to drop out of college. This was back in the 90s, and work for a couple of years, and then go back to college. To make a long story short, I'm not going to bore you with the details, right? 
But in that sort of summer, I was offered a contract um, to uh, be a professional uh, hip-hop star. Maybe I should give you some more details about that. <laughs> some of you are like, say what? And uh, back in the 90s, I used to be a Christian rapper. I could lay down some tracks. And uh, that summer, I, I told my best friend, I said, man, I, I've got to drop out of school because I ran out of money, and I just have to work. And then I went over a friend of my, another friend, his uh, friend's studio, and he's like, man, I want you to see this studio. It's so incredible. This big, state-of-the-art uh, studio where I, in this town where I lived. And my friend told him, he said, uh, hey, you've you got to listen to Jeff lay down some rhymes. And the guy was like, all right, get in there, white boy. And so I went into the studio. I went into the booth, and he laid down a track, and I started laying down the tracks. And I saw him in there talking to my friend Floyd, and I was like, what are they talking about? And I remember thinking, what are they talking about? When I came in there, back in there, the guy had a contract in his hand and said, okay, we'll fly you out to L.A. next week. I need you to read this, go over it with your lawyers, and then sign this, fly you out to L.A., cut the album. I was like, what? And I remember I told my best friend, Robbie, I told him, I said, uh, this, this is what's going on. And so he told his dad. His dad happened to be the senior pastor at my church. And so he had some connections with some big wigs in the church. Long story short, they paid my way through school. And so instead of me becoming the next Vanilla Ice, the next, the next rap sensation, <laughs> here I stand before you. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me, why do you have six degrees on your wall? I don't have them just because I'm a degree junkie. I have them because four of those degrees, someone in my life paid for them. Saw me working toward them and just offered to pay them off. Now, I, I, don't even, I haven't even sat down, sat down and done the math. I don't know how much money people have given me to go to school. But I can't repay them. I can't repay them. Understand that the gift that is given to me, my repayment to those people is not commensurate or in direct proportion to what they've given me. I could never repay them in that way. But my response is an urgent response. I respond with earnestness and seriousness, and I decide to make good on the gift that was given. Who could repay the Lord for all that he has done? Could you? My immediate and earnest response to his mercy becomes a fitting offering of praise and acknowledgement for what he has done. Another sense in which we are exhorted to respond is value. We value whatever is precious to us. And our response can be direct, a direct indication of whether or not we really value something and see it as worthwhile. If you really do value exercise, you will go to the gym. You will exercise, but if you just say you value it and then you don't go like I do in the winter, then you don't really value it. It's just a stated value. It's not actual. And this is what Paul summarized Romans chapter 1, okay? So Paul teaches that the godless and the unrighteous people are storing up wrath for themselves through their idolatry and their sinful rebellion against God's righteous decree, and then he summarizes our downward spiritual spiral into oblivion. In one sentence, Romans 1, 28, he says, and because they did not think it worthwhile, didn't value it, 
to acknowledge God. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. And listen, if you're a non-Christian here, you're not a believer and you're here today, we want to say, we're so glad you're here. And, and I hope that you've met 10 welcoming Christians in this place who welcome you as our guest in our home. But understand, as a believer, to deny this message, to deny so great a gift of grace and salvation and the offer of mercy and pardon for our sins is to devalue it. It's to consider it worthless. And to think it not worthwhile to receive God's grace results in a corrupted mind and life. And when we respond with a sense of urgency to this exhortation, acknowledging the infinite value of our salvation, we are delivered from a corrupt mind. So one of the first things Paul wants to say is, I urge you, I exhort you, respond appropriately. But what is the urgent response that God expects from the Christian? Number two, our response is total devotion. Well, everything. Everything I have is the least I can give. Everything I have is the least I can do in response to so great a gift. It's the least I can give. And so he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Not being conformed to the pattern of the thinking of this age is partly how we offer ourselves to God. And this is what we call, in the Old Testament now, this is called consecration. What is consecration? Consecration in the Old Testament was the act of setting something apart for a sacred purpose, to designate it for God alone. And the response that Paul exhorts and urges us to is a drastic separation, a drastic severing from the godlessness of this age to separate ourselves from its practices and its ways of thinking. The comparison here with these Old Testament sacrifices, with these new living sacrifices in the church or in, in the Christian life, is so clear. In the, old system, in the old system, you never brought your diseased livestock to sacrifice. Never. You didn't bring your diseased livestock. You brought what? Your best. You brought your best. Your sacrifice had to be your best, your purest. It had to be without defect, holy and acceptable to God. Look at how Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves are living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So as God's people saved by grace in Christ, we are holy we are a holy, royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And how do we do this? We offer it through the one who is the holy, acceptable, living sacrifice of God. Jesus is alive, and he was dead, and now he's alive. Jesus is the holy, spotless lamb of God. Jesus has come to proclaim the acceptable year of God's favor. And so now in the New Testament, the offering of our bodies, he says, is living. Paul says, in like manner, the believer in Christ has been placed in Christ. Mystical union. We call this doctrine mystical union. But the believer somehow mysteriously, by the Holy Spirit, has been placed in Christ. And he's been moved. He or she has been moved from death to life. 
and we are now to count ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, the sacrifices we give are alive like a severed electrical wire dancing and crackling with electricity on the pavement. The believer has been severed from the old and now moves, serving, giving, loving, correcting, rebuking, instructing, resurrection power. That's what enables us. That's what moves us. That's what, that's the steam under which we move. We're also holy. So in the Bible, holiness can take on one of two forms. The first form is moral perfection. Moral perfection. To be morally pure, which means to correspond to the way God is. God himself is the very standard of moral purity. He's the very standard of moral excellence. And the other way that holiness is communicated in the Bible is to actually obey his decrees, his moral decrees to us. And so what makes my service holy is the fact that it, it reflects his inviolable, holy nature and conforms to the sanctity of his commands. Only a Christian can do this because only a Christian is in Christ. And Christ is the one who has perfectly obeyed God. He's the one who has perfectly obeyed the Father. And it is through him, the holy Son of God, that we offer our life of service. And Paul says this is pleasing. This is acceptable. When a person who has partaken of resurrection life of the Spirit offers holy acts of sacrifice, love, service to God, that person is viewed as pleasing to God. And those sacrifices offered, as Peter wrote, are through Christ, who is the living, holy, acceptable one. So this is what it means to not conform to the pattern of this world. Let me ask you a question. When you were your own God, what good did you ever do yourself? What did serving your own self-God ever get you? All we had before we came to Christ was death and emptiness and hopelessness and absolutely no answers to anything. We were blind men leading the blind. We were dead men leading the dead. We were empty men leading the depressed and the empty. And before we knew Jesus, what on earth did we have to offer God that was acceptable and pleasing to him? Absolutely nothing. But by the mercies he has just enumerated from chapter 3 to chapter 11, from grace and faith all the way to our foreknowledge, predestination, and election. I had to sneak it in there. <laughs> by the mercies of God in view of them, According to the abundance of grace that has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, let us leave the old and offer the new. Let us not become conformed to the rotted, dying, lost culture. I urge you, entirety of your life, give it to the Lord. Hold nothing back. Amen. Number three, total devotion begins in the mind. So he starts out talking about our body. But that's not really the logical priority. The logical priority is the mind. He says, do not be conformed to this age. How are you going to do that? Well, you're going to do that by being transformed by the renewing of your mental state, your spirit, your mind. And so the offering of our bodies as spiritual sacrifices to God through his holy, acceptable, and living servant Christ, is that it's, listen, it's not a punch list of things to do. It's not a religious checklist that you check off every day. No, 
offering of our minds and our hearts and our bodies begins with the mind. It begins with us offering our minds to the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, body life and mind life are interdependent or mutually reliant. They're interdependent. They're mutually reliant. In terms of behavior, your body isn't going to do anything that your mind hasn't decided to do. And your mind isn't going to do anything without your body actually doing it. Seems kind of simple, right? It's like the gym. It's like going to the gym. Let's talk about that again. Because I've been thinking I need to get back in. I've just been so busy. It's been the holidays. We've had a lot of services. I'm thinking I need to get back in the gym. Now, now, this is the way it works. I love going to the gym. And I don't love it. Right? But all I need to do is make one decision. Go to the gym. <laughs> like I tell myself, drive there. <laughs> and if I drive all the way there, and I walk myself, and I grab myself by the neck and force myself in, then, then I can work out, and I'm feeling good. So I get on the machine, and I start burning calories. I'm like, this is me on the machine, by the way. That's what I look like. <laughs> I start burning calories. I start feeling good. It makes you feel good. And then in your mental state, you go, I think I could do this for another 30 minutes. And then I do for another five minutes. I do it. <laughs> then I leave before I burn a sweat. <laughs> right? But understand, this is the principle in the Christian life. The principle here is the spiritual life of the body and the mind. They work together. The transformation of the believer, not the forensic justification that we talked about in chapter 3, right? We talked about being forensically declared in the right. That's justification. That's just a verdict that you stand in the right in God's court. But now we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about getting that into your life. We're talking about the transformation of your life. And the secret here is to train your body through the mind. And the body has a reciprocating effect on the mind. And that comes through this book. As we read and study and immerse our thinking and ruminate on the truths of this holy word. Now listen, this is why Satan will stop at nothing to discredit the Bible. To distract us from it. Oh, he would rather you do anything else. And to disillusion us. I mean, I've been in ministry for 30 years, maybe a little bit more, but I've been in ministry for a few decades now. And one of the things that I've heard repeatedly over those years, over those decades of being in ministry, is someone will come to me and say, I got all these problems. I'm, I'm not a counselor like Michelle. She's a professional counselor. And so my response is, get in the word. They're like, no, I tried that for two weeks. <laughs> two whole weeks. Listen, we need to immerse our thinking in God's word. And here's why. Because the world is very active. The world is very active and very effective at discipling us in their way of thinking. And this is why we need time in the word. And so I'm going to give you just a few keys to that. Okay, just a few keys for. So first of all, if the Bible... The Word of God is going to have a restorative, renovating effect on the mind. We must have four things. The first one is content. It's the Bible. And by the Bible, I mean the Old and New Testament. And nothing else we would think of as Scripture. Now, I will say that books about the Bible are great. Books about the Bible are great if they're good books. Background studies on the first century or the ancient world, those are fun too. I enjoy that as well. Some inspirational books or 
or the Christian living kind of books also can have a very edifying effect on the mind. All of that has its place as exhortation, encouragement, instruction, but all of that is supplemental. It cannot substitute the word of God. It cannot take the place of the Bible itself. Here's why, because Paul says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting, for the training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible is inspired. It comes from the mind of God and it is given to men from the mind of God. But notice that it's also useful. And notice the correlation between its usefulness to train us in righteousness and its usefulness to train us for the work of God. The word of God trains us for the work of God. And so if we're going to experience the renovation of the heart and mind, we must start with the right content, the Bible. What's the right source material? It's scripture. Next is frequency and exposure. This has to do with time and intensity. Frequency of exposure. Now, if you have frequent and intense exposure to certain chemicals or asbestos, you will likely get cancer or mesothelioma. If you were a soldier and you had frequent and intense exposure to gunfire, explosions, and the blood and guts of war, you likely will develop some kind of PTSD. That stuff just rewires your brain, man. If you have frequent and intense exposure to optimistic parenting, like my mom, Sharon, who told me every day of my life, there's nothing you can't do. You want to be the president? You could be the president. You could be the king. Then you will grow up thinking the world is your oyster. And that everything you do, your life will just be characterized by an unbroken chain of success stories. And then life will quickly deprive you of that notion. Conversely, if you were raised in a negative environment where you never heard a kind word, ever, and you were always told that you were just a worthless, unwanted loser, you'll struggle to fight those thoughts to the day you're resurrected or to the day Jesus comes back. It's just axiomatic to say that frequent and intense exposure over time will change the wiring in your brain. It'll change how you think. And you will definitely think differently. Listen, if you, if, if you think your mind is going to be renewed because you listen to a 40, 140-minute sermon every week, the world, the culture will disabuse you of that notion because they will seek to disciple the way you think 24 hours a day. And now they've just got it on your phones. <laughs> like you could just flip through it all night. And so understand, they, they will disciple you, in, disciple you in their worthless and empty pattern of thinking. And so we need prolonged exposure to the word. We also need it in community. And we need a community of like-minded believers. Now by community here, I don't mean that we need an interfaith book club. I don't. Look, I know some of you are very diligent to lead discovery Bible studies. I wish every person in our church would do this, where you have people who come in who aren't necessarily Christians, they aren't Christians, but they say they are, and you're leading them through the word, and I say you're, you're fulfilling Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission. Reach them with the word. Those who are lost, befriend them, and let the cross offend them. Isn't that great? And some of you lead small groups or Bible studies on your jobs. I know you do. 
And I love those stories because it tells me that this church is reaching out to the culture. This church is reaching out to the lost and trying to bring them into the love and the truth of God and his word. But listen, in addition to that, you have to have a community where you gather with like-minded believers, people who believe the gospel, they believe the word just the way you do, and they believe in its value system. I need other Christians to reinforce the value system of the word of God, because if I don't get that on a frequent and regular basis in community, I'll be conformed to the pattern of the world. We also need strategic solitude. In addition to Community, we need intentional and temporary solitude. We need time away with God, searching his word, breathing in its inspired life. Mark 1.35 says this, that Jesus got up early in the morning to find a solitary place to pray. And no question, we need times when we get away with God. I need them as your pastor. Jesus Christ, the son of God, needed to do this. But I also want to tell you what this is not. This is not just perpetual isolation. I've met believers over the years who just, they take this principle and they do not have any community. They don't have any community. And what does isolation produce? I can tell you exactly what it produces. It produces some kooky, complicated, end times manifesto that ends up on my desk. Some weird perspective that people want me to read because they've discovered a new truth or they've rediscovered a truth we've sort of ignored for 2,000 years in church history. And they have some complex, weird thing that they've worked out. And that always tells me this person is not in community because they haven't done their scholarship in community. And you and I need to study the word. We need to get alone with God. We need times of intentional, strategic solitude. But that is not perpetual isolation because perpetual isolation will kill you spiritually. It'll make you weird. So what does a mind that is renewed in the word produce? Number four, renewed mind can discern the will of God. Don't we all want that? How many times? This is probably the question I've gotten most, actually. As a pastor, I probably heard this most. Pastor, how do I know the will of God for my life? And I go, well, it starts right here. It starts right here, the will that he's revealed in his word. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, so that you will be able to discern, distinguish What is good and pleasing and perfect? The will of God. God's will is already revealed in the Bible. And and any direction that the Lord gives you that is supposedly from the Spirit is going to comport with this book. And if it doesn't, it's not God's will and it's not God's word. Listen, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2 that God has given us the mind of Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. But that doesn't mean that every thought that pops into my head is Jesus' mind for me. I just wanted to end this by addressing something that's been very difficult uh, for me to process this last week. This last week, uh, a friend of mine called me and let me know that a mutual friend of ours who we have served with and loved and and, uh, has been a mentor and a leader for me in my life, uh, decided one day uh, he wasn't going to be a faithful believer and a leader anymore, but that he was just going to run off with another woman and leave his family and leave his wife. And it crushed me. It broke my heart. And I spent half a week since Wednesday trying to figure out how does this sort of thing happen? How how, how does a person come to this decision? I want to make a a couple of observations about that. In the letter that he sent a bunch of 
inner circle friends and his family, he blamed it on a couple things. First of all, the dire loss and circumstances that he's experienced over the years, and two, God's will for him to be fundamentally happy. Okay, so that is not God's will for his life. So let me, let me say a couple of things, a couple, three things about that. First of all, a bad decision in public is the result and the culmination of a thousand bad decisions that no one ever saw. That's, that's what it is. So, so that's the first thing that I will say. The second thing I will say is this. God's will for your life, his chief aim for your life, is not for you to be happy. Now, he, that doesn't mean your happiness is not compatible with his will for your life. I hope you are happy, right? And I think God wants you to be happy and healthy as well. But that's not his chief aim for our lives. His chief aim for our lives is holiness. It's walking in the image and likeness of Jesus. The next thing I would say is that the sinful decision played out in public was not due to environment or circumstances. It wasn't. No matter how much he wanted to blame it on environment and circumstances, listen, the scripture says there is no temptation that has come upon you that isn't already common to the human race, the human experience. So no one could say, use the excuse to say, well, man, you should have seen what I've gone through the last 10 years of my life. Okay, fine. But everything that you face is something someone else has faced. It's suffering or it's a challenge that they have faced as well. And there is no temptation that has come to our doorstep that is beyond our ability to bear because God himself has provided a way of escape through Christ, through his word. So the problem here is not an environmental problem. The problem is, frankly, not a circumstance problem. The problem is a mental problem. The problem is right here in this chapter. It's right here in this book. It's a breakdown in the thinking process. There is a point at which when we sin, we justify it in our heart. We say to ourselves, you may not say the exact words, but your sentiment is, I, I deserve to have that. I should have that. I mean, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Then he would want me to have that. And then when we publicly do it and people see that act of sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness, when they see it, it simply is a manifestation of so many decisions made up until that point. Now, listen, we don't sit arrogantly in judgment over anyone. That sort of thing right there should put the fear of God in us, shouldn't it? I mean, it should strike Fear, the fear of the Lord in our bones. And so we know that we are only sane morally and spiritually sensitive to the Holy Spirit because of the grace and mercy the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. We have also been given right here a sure path to being able to discern what is good and bad, to being able to discern what is righteous and unrighteous behavior. It's the renewed mind in the Word. So may I suggest some applications for us today? Number one, May our lives be characterized by an urgent response to so great a salvation, to the mercies Paul has told us that we have in Christ, a response that is immediate, no delay, is serious and earnest, is recognizing the value and the worth of the gift that has been offered to us in pardon. Two, in view of those mercies, our response is total. We are alive from the dead. As the holy saints of God, we offer pleasing, acceptable sacrifices of praise through the holy, righteous Lamb of God who was, a, who was dead and is now alive. 
Number three, and this total devotion begins with the renovation of the mind and the heart as we commit to studying God's word with intensity and community and privately, avoiding the dangers of isolation, which leads to us justifying sin. And number four, and this renewed mind and consecrated body produces in us a spiritual discernment, being able to discern righteousness from unrighteousness, the good from the bad, the pleasing from the odious, and the perfect from the imperfect the holy from the defiled. Amen? Will you make that co- your commitment this morning? Say, I- I'm going to do this. I'm going to live according to this word. I'm going to respond urgently to this exhortation. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you this morning for all these graces. In view of these mercies, in light of the mercy that you have showered us with and lavished upon us, Lord, we, we make these commitments solemnly. God, we commit to responding and not walking out of that door until you have our hearts, until you have all of us. And Lord, in view of these mercies, Lord, our response is total. We give our bodies to you to be used as instruments of righteousness, not instruments of unrighteousness. Since you have given us resurrection power and resurrection life, Lord, we devote and commit our very selves to you. And this devotion, Lord God, we thank you that you provided a way for our minds to be renewed day by day. And we commit ourselves to studying this word deeply and often and intensely and focused exposure to this word. God, renovate our hearts, renovate our minds. And God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for spiritual discernment. We thank you right now, Lord. We, we praise you and thank you that you've given us a way to discern what is evil and what is good. And the culture doesn't see it. The culture doesn't know. But Lord, would you make us a light in darkness? Would you make us salt in the earth today, a city on a hill, as we live out this word in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.